0: Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected, or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. We're we're this Palm Sunday is an amazing day. Um, it, it's also f- for me. Uh, as a pastor preparing to teach and talk about the traditional Palm Sunday message, um, it's also a a kind of heavy, disorienting Sunday sometimes because we're talking about Christ's obedience and Jesus' obedience to the Father today. This week starts a week of Jesus doing everything wrong. And what I mean by that is this week starts him doing everything that his followers thought was a bad idea. This is a bad PR move, Jesus. Why are you doing this? What are you talking? He's talking right right before this story in, in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to read ver, uh, chapter 21 today. Um, he's talking about all of this stuff, uh, about going to die and, and, and lay down his life. And they're like, wait, hold on. Aren't you supposed to save us? What's going on? But Jesus's obedience, uh, Christ's obedience is what we're going to talk about today. And, and his um, obedience to the Father, his obedience uh, to be so precise with what God uh, wanted him to do and what he's in, in turn calling us to do is so precise and so significant that, that we, we need to just take some time to sit with it this morning. So this message is an exciting message. It's a celebratory message, but I'm going to be honest, this is a little heavy today. So if you're visiting with us, I just want you to know you're welcome here, Um, but you're going to maybe just like get hit with a Mack truck this morning and you weren't expecting that. I just want you to know it's just a little heavier than normal this morning, Um, but this is a a very personal message as I'll share in a little bit for me um, as I share some of my own story. uh, basically when it comes to Jesus' obedience or following God and obeying God, it, it can be kind of unexpected to obey Jesus and follow what he says. Uh, how many of you have ever been in a place in your life where you're like, I- I'm following God, I know I'm on it, and then all of a sudden like, you go, oh, I'm way off. Anyone ever experienced that? Where you're just like, oh, man, I'm way... And Jesus shows up in such an unexpected way For a second, maybe you're confused, you're disoriented, but if you lean into it, if you go with it, it takes you into a deeper, richer life that you didn't expect, but you're so glad you did. You guys know what I'm talking about? Maybe some of you do. It's okay if you don't, but I want to share three stories with you today um, about um, something unexpected happening, but something really beautiful that results from it. The first story took place in January of 2007 in a subway station in Washington, D.C. Uh, and it was a, tor- a typical morning rush hour. Uh, there were low level government bureaucrats rushing out of the station, out onto the busy federal district streets, and they were headed to their first meetings of the day. It was the time of the month where there were a lot of expense report meetings happening, so it was really glitzy stuff that day. They were just in the humdrum, normal commute, and, and, and like most mornings, at the top of the escalator out of the subways, there was some kind of street musician there. Today it was someone playing violin, and people just kind of hurried on past. No one really paid them much attention. But as commuters stepped out the doors onto the busy streets to head to their offices, uh, many of them were stopped by reporters introducing themselves as being from the Washington Post. And, and the, the reporters asked for contact information. They, they wanted to just reach out to them. They're doing a piece on, on commuter life and, and commuting. And they wanted to know if they could call them later in the week with a few questions. And so. Many of them said yes. And, and later in the week, when these reporters called and talked to the commuters, they all asked, the reporters asked them all the same question. Did you notice anything unusual that morning on your commute? And for the most part, everyone's like, no, there was nothing out of the normal. It was a normal day. I just went to my job, kind of did, went through the motions, got out of the station as quick as I can. I wasn't really paying any attention to anything. There was nothing unusual, nothing unexpected, except for one man. And this man instantly, when the question was asked, said, Yes, I heard the most incredible violin player I have ever heard in my life. The phrasing was exceptional. The meter and the timing, the tone of his instrument and his emotion and the way he played was unparalleled. I've never seen someone play the violin like that before. Now, this man was unique out of all the commuters that morning. He'd actually studied uh, violin professionally in college, and he had aspirations to be a professional. It didn't work out for him. He was working in a mid-level management position with the United States Postal Service. And he, but he knew good violin players when he heard them, and he was going on and on about how amazing this violin player was. The gentleman was absolutely right that this violin player was talented because he was none other than Joshua Bell, one of the most famous, talented violin players in the entire world. And he was there in that DC metro station playing the most difficult piece of music ever written for the violin on a $3.5 million violin, playing it flawlessly. Every note, every tone, every phrase, every movement that he put into the music was unbelievable. Three nights before, Joshua Bell had just played to a sold-out Boston Symphony Hall where the cheap seats sold for just over $100. And that was in 2007. That morning in the train station, for 45 minutes he played, and a total of $32.17 was thrown into his violin case. Not quite the same experience for the international virtuoso. So, this, other than this gentleman, though, and a couple other individuals who recognized that this was a nice violin player or even a good violin player or a great violin player, barely any out of the over 1,000 commuters that morning stopped to listen to the music. There's actually a video. You can watch the entire thing play out. It turns out that this was actually planned by the Washington Post. This was a study in in cooperation with Joshua Bell to learn uh, what people would do if they heard beauty or beauty was found in a place that they didn't normally see it. Would you recognize beauty if it came in an unexpected form? And the results, it turns out, are no. Most people don't. They thought, even in a place as sophisticated as Washington, D.C., maybe there would be a a, a disproportional amount of classical music enthusiasts. Maybe someone would recognize Joshua Bell. Uh, But it turns out only a handful of people ever stopped. Ironically, and I I note this this morning because we have the kids in worship for the first time, ironically, the video shows every single child wanted to stop and listen to the music as they were yanked on by their parents. One commuter interviewed when he found out who this violin player was, was like, well, is he going to be back in D.C. anytime soon? To which the reporter said, yes, but it'll cost you about $500 a seat. Because they were expecting famous violin players to play only in certain venues because they were expecting world-famous violin players to wear formal attire instead of jeans, sneakers, and a baseball cap, because they were expecting world-famous violin players to not be playing at the top of the escalator in a downtown metro D.C. train station, over 1,000 people missed the opportunity of a lifetime because they weren't expecting it. They were looking for something else. This is similar to what happened in the second story that I want to share with you. It's the story of Jesus on Palm Sunday. Sure, there were crowds gathered. They knew this was someone important. It was joyous, and they were shouting Hosanna, and they waved palms. But in the midst of that, Jesus' obedience to the Father that day meant that he would do some things that were incredibly unexpected, and it was going to cause massive disruption for God's people that day. And for those that didn't lean in that day that Jesus came into Jerusalem, who didn't lean in to notice the beauty on display, they would miss out too, just like all of those commuters in the subway station. So let's read this story together. We'll read the first part of it, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. The story goes like this. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, The Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take it. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. In this story, as much as a a crowd gathered, Jesus does two things in particular that are absolutely shocking and unexpected to those who are watching. First, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem on a donkey. The donkey was the sign of peace. Kings would ride on donkeys in peacetime and war horses during wartime. This was not what Jerusalem was expecting. You see, many believed that Jesus could be the long-awaited Messiah. The Messiah is the Hebrew word that means the Christ. It's not Jesus' last name, FYI. It's a title. See, there's my attempt to be funny, guys. And we are making a joke before about me being funny, and it never works. Uh, The Christ, the Messiah, it means the anointed one. And in the Hebrew scriptures, which is the Old Testament, uh, there was this prophecy, many prophecies about one who would come, who was going to have all of God's authority, who was going to rescue the Jewish people, who was going to reestablish the royal household of King David, and he was going to rule over all the earth. And based on their reading of the Old Testament, many Jewish leaders in Jesus' day actually uh, believed that the Messiah was supposed to come come sometime roughly in the time frame that they were alive and up until this point and after it actually there had already been many claims to of those who thought they could be messiah or the people thought they could be messiah because the timing was right between roughly 4 bc and 6 a.d uh, there were several jewish military leaders who were proclaimed king by the common people they they all came from humble origins just like Jesus some one of them in particular was even a shepherd just like king david had been a shepherd and so there were clear signs at least to the people that these people at different points this one could be the messiah or this one could be the messiah they're going to help they're going to free us they're going to set us free So these different leaders would lead uh, armies and and lead insurgencies in in, uh, Judea and Jerusalem and the surrounding area. They would storm Herod's palaces. There's Roman records of this. They would storm Herod's palaces. They would steal food for the common people to feed them and weapons and money in order to finance their military campaigns against the Roman occupation. Some of them actually conquered and took back significant portions of Judea and Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside. One in particular, Rome had to send a massive army, over fifteen to 20,000, which is a very large army for ancient times, in order to stop one of the Jewish claims to being Messiah. And even then, it took the Roman army a long time to stop them. And on top of uh, this military leader, there there had been, on top of all of this, a military leader uh, about 150 years prior to Jesus coming into Jerusalem. uh, Prior to people believing the Messiah was coming, he had conquered Judea from the Greek people at the time. He had taken back Jerusalem and reestablished Jewish rule. He set himself up. He was a Jewish king during that time. And during that time, he had coins minted to commemorate his victory. And guess what was on the coin? A palm branch to signify his military and political victory. So these are the expectations that are put on Jesus by the people as he enters Jerusalem. They're expecting a political leader, a military leader, someone who is going to save them in the way it had been done before, in the way they had seen before. And they were waving palms, shouting Hosanna, which literally means save us, as a sign of the way they expected Jesus to save them, to come in, to conquer, to rule and restore Jewish rule. Because Jesus had had such a powerful ministry up to this point. They believed he could be the Messiah where all others had failed. But Jesus was about to do something completely unexpected. Something no one was looking for. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. The animal of peace. Not a war horse ready to stir up the people for battle. And eventually, he would go to the cross less than a week later to save them in a way that looked absolutely powerless and weak and useless. It was completely unexpected. But Jesus wasn't done. He was going to do something even more unexpected than just riding in on a donkey that day and declaring he was here for peace. Let's keep reading the story together. Verse 12, it says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The leading priests and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. But the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, Do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied, Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say, You have taught children and infants to give you praise. Then he returned to Bethany, where he stayed overnight. So Jesus has already upended their ideas of what a Messiah was for, what he was going to do. He was going to restore Jewish rule and reign. And then he goes into the temple complex and he begins to clear house. The temple had. Places set up for people exchanging money into the Jewish, uh, the temple currency. You had to use special temple currency to buy animals to sacrifice in that place. And, And so he threw all of these tables, flipped them all over, caused chaos, it seemed. He went to disrupt all of the preparations for worship, all of the sacrifices for Passover. How many of you feel uncomfortable just thinking about that? coming into church and seeing Jesus just start moving everything out of the way that we're saying, wait, 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 that's supposed to be there. We've always done it that way. And he says this, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. This phrase, den of thieves, is, is interesting, and, and, and it's really important for us today. The word thieves actually in the Greek, it's not talking about someone who stole bread or is even uh, extorting money or something. The word lestai in the Greek literally means a nationalist rebel. The temple had become a place of corruption, yes, but not just because of money being spent there or exchanged there and shady deals going down uh, to burn uh, animals for sacrifice. Jesus saw an even deeper spiritual corruption and, and corruption of the way worship was at work there, and it needed to be removed from the place where pure worship was supposed to be happening. The sin of the Jewish people was the sin of idolatrous worship of their own nation of the way they wanted things to be done, their visions for what their Savior was supposed to look like. Instead of the temple being a place of authentic, pure worship to God, where his presence was, was and, and where people could come and be blessed by his presence and be transformed, it had turned into a symbol of Jewish arrogance and pride. One commentator describes the Jewish relationship to the temple in Jesus' day this way. The temple was not fulfilling its God-ordained role as a witness to the nations, but it had become, like the first temple, the premier symbol of a superstitious belief that God would protect and rally his people, irrespective of their conformity to his will. In other words... The Jewish people had come to believe that as long as they had the temple, they had proof God was on their side, no matter what they did, no matter what means they used to bring about victory, no matter what the circumstances or the consequences, as they would say, a victory for us is a victory for God. They had been so blinded by their desire to gain political independence, overthrow centuries of oppression, that they had turned the house of prayer into a nationalist stronghold, is Jesus' words. Instead of being a symbol of his presence, it had become a symbol of their ethnocentrism and national, uh, nationalistic ideology, where God was worshipped alongside of their country and who they were as Jewish people. Now what do I mean by nationalism? It can be a heavy word, throwing it around here. Here's just how Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines it. It's a sense of national consciousness exalting one nation above all others and placing primary emphasis on promotion of its culture and interests as opposed to those of other nations. Pastor Daniel Hill notes this. He says that this highlights how nationalism can become dangerous so quickly. Whereas, here's the difference here. Patriotism describes one affection for or commitment to their country. Nationalism describes a view of one's nation as above others. It emphasizes the superior traits of that particular nation and promotes those traits over the traits and values of another. And the Jewish people were, in a sense saying that their Jewish identity, their Jewish values, their Jewish way of life was better than everyone else's. And they were thinking, as long as we have the temple, we have the proof that God is on our side, our ethnicity side, our culture side, and we will constantly make sure that you know that we are better. And they did this even though God's promise to Abraham had been this. The father of the Jewish people. The promise had been, I will make you a blessing to all nations. Not your nation. Not some nations. But all nations. All people. Jesus' denouncement of all of this was completely unexpected completely disrupted everything they had come to believe in, their whole way of life. They simply could not see any good coming out of what Jesus was doing right now. Jesus, this isn't good for us. I feel uncomfortable. All these people feel uncomfortable. I'm offended. I don't like what you're doing. You need to stop now. But here is the beauty we need to catch, just like in that subway station. In the midst of something unexpected, something beautiful began to happen. The next verse after Jesus does this says this. The the lame, the blind, and children began to flock to Jesus. Why does that matter? Why is that important? Here's the significance. Because lame and blind people were limited to where they were allowed to move within the temple complex. If you were lame and blind, you could go, you can go stand over there, but don't you dare go in there to worship. Because you'll defile the temple. Stay over here because you are unclean. Children, we're familiar with this. Throughout history, generally children, it's thought that it's better that they're seen and not heard. Children, don't make a ruckus. Keep down. People are worshiping God here. Follow what we're asking you to do, children. These historically marginalized groups within the Jewish culture and community, those that were on the outside looking in, were finally allowed to draw near to the presence of God himself in Jesus. And it transformed, hear this, the blind and the lame were transformed, they were healed. The clean, Jesus is called the temple, identified as, he identifies himself as the, the new temple. Was the temple defiled when, when the lame and the blind came to him? No, the blind and the lame were made clean. where we thought it would destroy everything, actually the very presence of Jesus cleanses everything that wants to be transformed by Jesus. When the nationalistic fervor is broken and was broken in that temple complex, the whole idea of the you're not good enough to be here is broken and suddenly all these people that were on the margins are suddenly equals before God. All these people can come to God in a way they were not able to before. How beautiful is that? Something beautiful happened in the midst of something completely disorienting, completely disruptive, completely unexpected. But unfortunately on that day, just like in the subway station, many people missed it because they were looking for something else. This brings us to our final story. This is... Your story and my story, and I, I want to share a little bit of my story personally in just a minute. But the Jewish people weren't the only ones in history to uh, create an idolatrous blend of, of God and country like this. This has been happening, honestly and unfortunately, throughout the history of the church. In the Middle Ages, the fear, I'm a history nerd, sorry, so you're getting a history lesson. In the Middle Ages, the, the, the fear of Muslim advancement into Europe and the European way of life, it, it led to a, a mix of, of political and, and religious language being mixed, which created the Crusades. And countless atrocities were committed in the name of Jesus that looked nothing like Jesus. Nazi Germany, the, Nazi, uh, the German national church, the Lutheran church, Uh, A little different than the Lutheran Church nowadays, obviously, but the German National Church had several of its prominent leaders, its primary leadership, join the Nazi Party. Many uh, passionate, passionate Christians called themselves stormtroopers for Jesus Christ as they did the Nazi Party's bidding in the name of Jesus There was a propaganda poster from 1933 and it said, uh, Hitler's fight and Luther's teaching are the best defense for the German people. Referring to Martin Luther, the great German reformer of 400 years earlier. I'm sure he really would have loved having his name associated with that poster. In our own time, many of you have seen in the news the Russian patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church blessing the Russian invasion of Ukraine calling it just and God's will. Celebrating Russia as God being on Russia's side in this. A few years back during the time of the annexation of Crimea in southern Ukraine, the patriarch took part in the dedication of a new Russian church called the Church of the Russian Army. A memorial to celebrate all things great about the Russian army. There's something ironic about a church that's being dedicated to a military power When the church was founded on someone who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and said, Turn the other cheek. In more subtle, less violent ways, this thing plays out all the time in all kinds of churches. All the time, this nationalistic idolatry plays out. I had a friend of mine who who did consulting all around the world for for churches, and he he spent time in one Chinese uh, congregation. And they informed him at the beginning of the consult uh, that they would not be changing anything and make any biblically informed changes to their practices if it was going to conflict with Chinese culture. Because as they said, Chinese culture predates the Bible. So God's revelation is secondary to what we have here in our own ethnicity, our own nationality. And even in our own backyard, in our own lives, we have to be honest and confront the versions of this that we deal with, don't we? We've all fallen victim in one way or another, at one time or another in America to impure nationalistic worship. And Jesus wants to do something unexpected in our lives, just as he wants to do for all people in all places, and save us from even this. We only need to look in our own country to just over a year ago, January 6, 2021, violent rioters storming the U.S. Capitol with political motivations, waving banners saying Jesus saves, literally like waving a palm branch saying Hosanna. The mix of Christianity and nationalistic fervor here is obvious and it is idolatrous. Now I say that this is my story and your story. This is our historical story of how the church has handled this kind of thing throughout history. But let me bring you a little closer to home and share my heart with you. I grew up in a very conservative home uh, and and, uh, was taught usually indirectly and implicitly uh, from my family but also from my church and growing up that God and country were inseparable. I believed that God was using America, not in the same way that he just uses every country and every people at all times and places, but I I believed that there was something exceptional and special about the way he was using America in the world. That we were at the forefront of something, bringing the kingdom of God to earth somehow. American nationalism is is really actually unique, and, and the way it's so hard to weed out because the very origins of our country... Are, are both political and often biblical language attached to it. I, I was taught in my American history class. I'm sorry, I'm a history nerd, so you're getting a lot of history. I was taught about manifest destiny. Anyone remember lectures about manifest destiny? It, it was a phrase coined in the early days of our of our founding. And again, Pastor Hill, Daniel Hill puts it this way, that It took God's promises that were for Israel in the Old Testament about a promised land and and being God's channel of blessing to the world, and it applied those promises in an unbiblical way to the United States. And this has created three theological things that I think American Christians are dealing with. And we could talk about other countries that are dealing with their own versions of it, but we're all here, Americans, I think for the most part, unless someone's visiting from out of country, so we'll just talk about us and our own things we need to work through. But these three theological things that mess with us a bit here are that that the Christian moral vision, specifically the American version of that, is superior and righteous. Hear the nationalistic tone in that. Number two, that God has specifically tasked our country with the responsibility to spread these ideas for the benefit of the world. And number three, that God has blessed America to succeed in this task. And that success, particularly when we have economic success, it is an ongoing confirmation of that blessing. Similar to the way the Jewish people would look at the sign of the temple as an ongoing confirmation that God still blessed them. But it had become, in some ways, a nationalistic stronghold, a den of thieves. And, and listen, I I lived in this. I swam in this. C.S. Lewis says a fish doesn't know that it's wet. Uh, this I, I had no idea that this this is just. It was handed to me. It was obvious. This is this is true, and I believed that we were going to change the world through uh, political action, through political uh, elected officials, through legislation, through forcing moral reform and change on society. I was zealous for this. I was so zealous for this, guys. You have no idea. I don't even. Some of you know the story, but before I went into ministry, I was uh, in Air Force officer training. I was studying political science in college. I had a vision, I had an agenda of how I personally wanted to see God manifest his kingdom on earth. But then I had something very unexpected happen to me. I had a very, choke up when I think about this, the most gracious, gentle Pastor, missionary friend of mine, who just, with one simple sentence, gave me the most gentle, loving rebuke of my life. But it was so disruptive to me and disorienting. And something amazing came out of that. I, I just began to process his words that he'd spoken to me, how he had very simply and gently identified my worship of my country alongside of my Jesus. And I began to process his words, and out of that I had a very powerful encounter with God where he asked me to completely upend and change my life at a financial cost to me, among other things. He asked me to leave the Air Force. I left the school that I was attending to study ministry and go into ministry, which is Something, if you know Jillian and I, she never wanted to be a pastor's wife and I never wanted to be a pastor, so it's working out great. <laughs> but Jesus began in me 15 years ago this process that he's still ongoing, but He is purifying my worship so that this part of mine is not a den of thieves, a temple of nationalistic focus. He began to cleanse my idolatry and and cleanse my heart and, and show me and give me opportunities out of that to see healing and restoration and wholeness among people who were once far from the presence of God and they couldn't get close to me and to Jesus as a result because of the nationalistic sentiment I was harboring in my heart. My superiority about the right ideas, the right ideology, the right politics. I've already seen more life change in people than I ever would have pursuing a nationalistic agenda. And I'm not finished. And you're not finished. This is what happens when we lean in to the unexpected presence of Jesus and we allow him to do a deep work of purifying our worship that January morning in a Washington, D.C. subway station, most people missed out on the opportunity of a lifetime to hear something, some of the most beautiful music, some of the most intricate stuff, the sound they would probably never be able to hear something like that again in their life, And they missed out on the opportunity to be able to stand just a few feet away from a master violinist And enjoy the beauty being offered the world. They missed it because they weren't expecting it. And when it showed up in a form that they didn't like, or that they weren't used to, or that they weren't understanding, they pushed it away. Just like Joshua Bell playing his violin in a DC subway station, Jesus is here. He's doing something unexpected. Jesus is playing a song of transformation that he wants you to jump into. It's different maybe than you grew up with. It's different maybe than you thought Christianity worked. But he's inviting you into this thing where you are no longer impressed by our own political agendas, by nationalistic ideologies, where you're no longer impressed with human power. He wants to invite you and I into a way of following him that isn't tied to one nation or another. It is simply tied to his kingdom. He wants you to lay down any sense, any hint, because we all have layers and levels of these things, any hint of nationalist arrogance. Lay it down for the beauty of his kingdom. He wants you to long for healing in people's lives that are around you. He wants you to long to see transformation and redemption at work in people's lives with those that couldn't get close before. Maybe as I'm speaking, the Holy Spirit's pointing things out to you. And maybe he's speaking things to you in a way that feels very uncomfortable right now. Maybe you just feel uncomfortable. Maybe you feel tension. One of the best things we can do when we feel discomfort, when we feel tension, is to actually rest in it with God and say, Jesus, why do I feel this way right now? Why do I feel so uncomfortable with this? Why do, maybe you're on the other end of things. Why do I feel so much uh, vindicated rage right now? Maybe you're on the other side of this. We all have things we need to confront when it comes to this issue. Jesus didn't shy away from it. He walked right into Jerusalem on a donkey, flipped tables over, and he called his people back to their first love. That his house would be a house of prayer, a place of pure worship. You know, the church is called the new temple. We're a temple of the living God. That we would be a pure house of prayer not a den of thieves, not a nationalist stronghold. We are a house of prayer, of carriers of the presence of the living God to see the world transformed, redeemed, restored. So I want to invite you to do three things as we close. Three steps for you. I want you to reflect. What in this message is for me? Ask yourself. Go to the hard thing, not the easy thing. I'm like that with myself, so I wouldn't ask anything less of you. Have I let my patriotism become something more? Have I worshipped my country over Jesus? Have I confused the two? Reflect. Why do I feel this tension? Why do I feel offended? Why do I feel uncomfortable? Second, Confess. Confess to the Lord. It doesn't have to be to the whole church, but find a person that's safe that you can confess this to. Someone that's not going to, like, get on your case for your confession, but someone who's going to really hold you to the confession in a loving way, just like my pastor friend did for me. Confess. Name specifically where and how you have merged Jesus and country or Jesus and culture, or Jesus and ethnicity. And name specifically, how do these things need to be detangled? How have I confused the two? And number three, repent. Once we've reflected, we've named these things in confession, repent. Turn away from the practices, turn away from the habits, turn away from the behaviors, turn away from the places, turn away from the the places and the people that shape you in these unhealthy directions. We are formed as much by the people, the places, the habits as much as we're formed by just prayer and reading scripture. So consider the places that you're in. Find opportunities to do the opposite. Put yourself in a position to serve those who are different from you. Put yourself in a position to love those on the margins the way they are asking to be loved in the moment, not the way you want to. Those who need to be near Jesus' presence, go to them. One of the best things that pulled me out of this in the last 15 years has been simply hearing the stories of people who are radically different from me, have radically different backgrounds, not only in this country, but around the globe. One of the things about our beautiful Alliance uh, denomination family is that there's opportunities to hear stories from Christians around the globe and hear what their perspective is Hear what their struggles are. Hear what they're seeing Jesus doing in the world. And and just listen to those stories, not offer any solutions, not say, but what about this? Not try and prove them wrong. Just simply enter into their story and listen. Not even to let it change your opinion and your perspective, because we're not going to agree on everything. But let it grow compassion in you, maybe that you've never had before recognize the sin and the idolatry in you that needs to be repented of through those conversations where maybe I've taken a good thing and turned it into something evil. Those stories are so powerful for that. So repent, do differently than you were before. This is unexpected obedience. I'm sure many of you were not expecting that kind of message this morning. Maybe some of you were, I don't know. I certainly wasn't looking for it 15 years ago. But God met me. And there's power in the transformation work he's done in me. And Jesus wants that same beauty to be done in you. He doesn't want you to miss that violin player. But standing there, off in the corner, unassuming, but wondering, is anyone going to listen? Is anyone going to stop and realize what's happening? That Jesus is doing something different. Different than I could have imagined. And it's more beautiful than I thought possible. And I get to be three feet away from it. I get to be right in front of it. As the team comes up to close us in worship. And we're going to take communion together. I'll just share this one more story that's very illustrative of this. The the close of uh, the article I read in the Washington Post... There was one woman right at the end who about two weeks before had seen Joshua Bell play at the National uh, Archives. She'd been very close to him. and So she recognized him instantly. It was about two minutes from the close of the performance. And she went right up. I'm just going to come down here and get awkward for a second. And she stood right in front of him. She's like, I am not letting this opportunity go by. She recognized what was happening in the moment and she took full advantage of it. And here, my friends, is what I want to say to you. Jesus is standing right here, perhaps in an unexpected way, in an unexpected form. But he's like, come stand right here. I want you right here. I'm going to do something in you and through you that is way better than anything you've imagined before. Jump in.